This is Beyond Species, a podcast exploring issues around speciesism and the struggle to dismantle it. episode, we hear from Gemma about her concept of radical animism and book of the same name. We begin with Gemma's current studies of fungi and what we humans can learn from it. Gemma then expands on some of the themes of radical animism, including the four blows to human narcissism, the agency of the Anthropocene, the evolution of language, and the animism of literature, including how texts, like Alice in Wonderland, can challenge and bring fresh light to our expectations of non-human animal agency. If you want to start then just by giving us an introduction to yourself and your studies. Yeah, sure. So I'm a postdoctoral researcher. Um, I'm currently based at the Rachel Carson Center in Munich, Germany. I'm what you might call an eco-critic, um, which means that my background, my academic training is is in literary studies, but I use this perspective, I use the readings of literature to, to think about environmental questions, so climate change, extinction, mm-hmm. and I'm really kind of more broadly to kind of think about what it means to be a human on this planet, Mm -hmm. kind of really to think about big existential philosophical questions um, through literature. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so um, it's quite interesting that you take a literature approach to an issue as huge as um, the climate crisis. And, um, you know, the Anthropocene, uh, obviously we'll get onto that later, but is that quite a common thing that the eco- I've not really come across much uh, or I've not read a lot of uh, eco-criticism? Is this quite a large field or? It is now. And I'd mm-hmm. say it's like something that kind of, you know, over the last five years or so, you just, they're just universities everywhere, literature departments are starting eco-criticism courses. So it's really mm-hmm. kind of ramping up for obvious reasons. So when I started my PhD, my PhD is like technically just in literature. And when I started my PhD, it was just going to be a kind of standard literature PhD. I wanted to look at for modernist authors. Mm. Um, And then, I mean, I had a sort of mini breakdown that is common to early stage PhD researchers of like, what is the point in what I'm doing? And and part Mm. of that crisis for me was the fact that I couldn't really see the point in what I was doing when what I really cared about was the environment. Mm-hmm. And I ended up taking I ended up taking a year out. And then when I returned to my PhD, I knew that if I was going to see it through, it had to be about the environment. Mm. And so that's kind of how I ended up being like, well, I need to work on literature and the environment. But as I said, it is it is quite a common subfield within literary studies now. And I think this also falls under the broader umbrella of what's called the environmental humanities. So within any humanities subject that you can think of, there is now a focus on the environment, because, of course, we can no longer think about what it means to be human 
without thinking it in the in the broader context of the the situation that we are now in yeah yeah totally and then i don't usually ask my guests what made them go vegan or how they went vegan and things like that but i think it'd be interesting to hear from you about your journey to veganism and we can look at later maybe how that links in with animism and you know the work that you do yeah it was definitely tied to my research basically i was i was vegetarian slash occasional pescatarian from age 14 but then when i started doing this phd research and started focusing on the climate crisis that's basically when i went vegan because i just kind of felt i can't like I, I can't spend all day thinking and writing about the climate crisis and continue to consume dairy mm, which yeah. was you know the the main thing that was stopping me from being vegan but i will say as well that it wasn't really a struggle for me because mm. i um so even when i was vegetarian i was already having plant-based milks just because i preferred them mm -hmm. and so the main thing that was keeping me from being vegan was yogurt and then when i um I, you know i was like I, I ate yogurt every morning for breakfast and then at the same time as i was doing this phd i also moved in with two vegans right. and then it just kind of it just sort of happened and then after a while i was like you know what i haven't eaten any dairy for a couple of months maybe i'm vegan now mm. and so like i just wanted to say that because you know i i feel like the kind of all or nothing mindset can be quite damaging and i do also understand that like it yeah. you know for people it can be like much more of a struggle if you're like so much more habituated to mm -hmm. eating those those products and so you know for me like yeah it definitely aligns with my beliefs and so i'm happy about that but it wasn't that i had to like kind of go through this big struggle struggle to get there so i really think kind of you know compassion for people who don't have it that easy is also necessary yeah absolutely and so many vegans seem to forget that they, that they also took steps to get there you know like mm -hmm. i was vegetarian for i think eight years before i went vegan and i'd actually tried being vegan once like way at the start and it only lasted a couple of months or something so i was like a failed vegan and went veggie yeah. for years and years and then made the change so yeah i mean you know and positive encouragement is always going to work better than like guilt and shame surely yeah. you know yeah. so yeah you are also keen on mushrooms and fungi not, yeah well i was going to say not to eat but you probably do eat them as well but but um what, what is that um interest about and where did that come from yeah so i mean i will say i do absolutely love eating them mm -hmm. definitely um but um this is like a new um postdoctoral research project that i've i've really just got started on so again i'm i'm kind of basing it on on literature but i'm kind of using the ways in which fungi demand that we change the way that we think. They expose, I guess, the, the speciesism in our science and in our assumptions. So a lot of our kind of biological concepts, which we take to be truth, mm. are in fact based on what it means to be a mammal mm. or you know e indeed what it means to be a a human mammal um so you know we have the concept of the biological individual which kind of comes from this 
illusion that we have at, at the human scale, we sort of see ourselves and we see other animals as kind of, you know, these discrete entities that are walking around. We now know that that's not true, that we, each of us, has a whole ecosystem within our bodies, um, all the kind of microbiota. But when you look at fungi, this notion completely falls apart. The notions that we have of an individual and a species just, just they don't map onto the way that fungi live and reproduce. So like within the mycelium of a single fungal individual, in quotes, there can be multiple genomes. So it kind of turns what we, what we think we know about species um, on its head. And another example is, is aging. So our, our concept of aging is very tied to the way that mammals, animals age. So, you know, the kind of the older you get, the more likely you are to, to die. Yeah. Well, that's not the case with fungi. Often mm. the older they get, the more resilient they are. Um, so there's this, there's this wonderful article on lichen by um, a scholar called Anne Pringle um, in, in the book Arts of Living on a Damaged Planet. And she's looking at these lichen growths. Um, and lichen is obviously this symbiotic relationship between fungi and an algae or a fungi and a photosynthetic bacteria. And actually, you know, the older the lichen gets, the less likely it is to die. And so they don't have this kind of programmed death in the way that that we have. Yeah. And then just one more example. So like we, we you know, we kind of we think of cognition and intelligence to be to be limited to what a mind, what a brain can do. But actually, we see that the fungal mycelium, so the mycelium are these these microscopic threads that are under underground. Um, so we think when we hear fungi, we think of mushrooms, which are, you yeah. know, the kind of the bits that pop out. But this is just the fruit. The, the body of the fungus is underground. It's this vast web that kind of links um, all different plants together. Mm -hmm. And these kind of these operate as complex adaptive systems that are kind of like this giant brain underground mm. and so there's studies being done with with fungi and also with slime molds and they are demonstrating like problem solving abilities so kind of you know they're putting fungi in a maze which has like kind of cities around it and then the fungi sort of design what would be a really efficient transport network by sort of reaching these goals. And so again, this kind of notion that we have that the kind of cognition that we have is like particular to us or particular to what happens in a in a primate brain mm. is actually when we look at fungi, it's like, okay, that's not quite true. There are other ways that that things can can um, problem solve. I'm interested in in like thinking about these ways that fungi disrupt the way we think, how they show us like how our assumptions kind of fall down. Mm -hmm. And so and how they can then help us to develop new modes of thinking through the Anthropocene. I'm basically planning to kind of look at representations of fungi in Anglophone literature from the early modern period up until the present, because I feel like when you see representations when you see concepts often what they tell you they tell you more about the people and the cultures who have come up with these concepts than the thing being conceptualized yeah so yeah, yeah. that's kind of the the new fungi project but i am really in the kind of nascent stages of that wow <laughs> yeah that, that's going to be amazing so i'd never thought of that before about how fungi could teach us things 
about you know there's there's other ways to be and to know things and to I mean I'm sure well, maybe intelligence isn't the right word but there's other yeah other ways of knowing I suppose mm-hmm. what can we learn from that and we should be looking to nature to learn as much as we can because kind of the path we've taken obviously with like a lot of western sciences there's a lot to do with the mess that we're in with the climate crisis and um kind of healthcare and capitalism and stuff right mhm mhm and you know it's like all these these concepts of science and civilization these are completely constructed and like mm-hmm. this is part of what my my work is is trying to show that we take them as as a given but mm. like actually they are highly constructed from within a viewpoint that that is speciesist mm-hmm. that kind of you know models everything on human beings so kind of stepping outside of that can completely change your perspective on how you understand what's going on in the world today yeah it's like extending the concept of speciesism to include plant species right because yeah so what i'm thinking of here is um you know the classic vegan street activism gotcha moment on plants is that you know a non-vegan will say to a vegan oh but plants have feelings too and the non-vegan will come back with some witty response you know is like plants can't feel pain you know they don't have a central nervous system or whatever and that's exactly that kind of species is thinking because what you're saying is the only or the best way to exist and and the the way that matters is if you you have that kind of um nervous structure that mammals have and so actually what vegan should be saying is is you know plant intelligence or plant uh life is really something that we should be looking at and learning from and not just like we're just drawing another line you know between animals mm-hmm. and the plant mm-hmm. kingdom if you want to call it that so you know we're complaining that there's this 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 arbitrary line being drawn between humans and and animals and we're drawing another one the other side you know mm-hmm. so it doesn't make sense you should keep that open ended and explore it more mhm mm-hmm. yeah. yeah it's about complicating the distinctions rather than sort of just moving them on to mm-hmm. another position yeah yeah exactly and while i'm on that are fungi actually considered plants or are, are they no no, no. i was going to say so there no. there's something else entirely Fun- fungi we are more closely related to fungi than we are to plants right. so like mammals mm-hmm. fungi uh digest their food they secrete enzymes into their environment to digest their food um whereas obviously plants photosynthesize right. yeah um so and you know this is kind of another way in which they have like historically disrupted our thinking for because for a very long time they were considered to be sort of strange plants yeah and then actually with genomics we realized that fungi and mammals come off of the same branch of evolutionary history and and plants mm. come off of a separate one So if we move on to the book that you've written Radical Animism if you could give us an overview of the book and how you came about to write that 
yeah, sure. So this came from my PhD thesis that I've already alluded to a little bit. So it is a a literary study, um, but it's kind of uh, it's thinking literature and the climate crisis through this notion of animism. I mean, it's probably worth me explaining kind of what exactly animism is yeah, at yeah, this sure. point. So the the word comes from a Victorian anthropologist called E.B. Tyler, and he used it to describe the so-called primitive, in quote marks, belief systems of certain people. So the belief that there is life, spirit or agency in non-human and non-living things. So kind of seeing the spirits in trees or in rivers or in rocks. Mm. And this is kind of, it was a kind of derogatory term to, to distinguished from uh, so-called higher religions. And then of course, civilized modern science, which which had apparently kind of surpassed all of these beliefs. Um, yeah. But in my book, I'm really thinking about the ways in which we are still radically animist. So animism is kind of fundamental to human society. So consumerism is a kind of animism where we where, you know, mm -hmm. kind of things take on they take on more than their their physical properties mm -hmm. through the mechanisms of capitalism that kind of instill us with a kind of fetishist uh, fetishistic desire to to have these things as mm -hmm. if they can you know make us better or more attractive or whatever another example the notion of a corporation is a kind of animism so the word corporation means literally body this this corp is the same root as the word corpse mm -hmm. and you know so we we endow corporations with rights with legal rights yeah um and and you know this is a, a kind of modern animism where there is no physical body there but we act and we treat it even legally as if it was a real body rather mm. than just kind of something that we'd that we dreamed up. Mm -hmm. So yeah, and the book kind of is looking at this notion of animism and um, thinking about climate change as a kind of planetary animism. So kind of seeing that there, that there is a animism or agency within the way that the planet is responding to our behavior. And it's also very much concerned with what I call the animism of language and literature. So we kind of, we often think that language is this um, tool that humans have invented and, and, you know, and that distinguishes us from other yeah. beings. But actually, I, I show how when you look more closely, um, language has a certain agency of its own. So it kind of, in quite insidious ways sometimes it, it it shapes what we think and what we say and what we can think and what we can say but it also takes on a life of its own so it's, and and we see this particularly in literary texts so so mm -hmm. you take a, a what's called a classic literary text and sort of through the ages these new meanings emerge from it and so it's it's almost as if that text has this kind of animistic potency beyond the original intention of the author mm -hmm. yeah so it's is it kind of like people can interpret the text kind of depending on the context that they're in at that time you know a text written in the 1800s mm -hmm. 
you know, might have been very relevant um, and understandable back then because it was written within that time, about that time, say. But here we are, you know, a few hundred, couple hundred years later, and um, that text might still be speaking to us, but in different ways. So it's kind of like that text as, you know, some things might be relevant, some things might seem irre irrelevant that were relevant then and so on. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. So it's kind of like, I suppose that's why, you know, writers are, are so keen on writing because it, it's kind of grants you or grants a text at least the kind of immortality mm -hmm. yeah. i mean I, I wouldn't say immortality but i would say life mm -hmm. that it has a kind of life of its own and and maybe it's helpful here for me to just give a concrete example so mm. um the book opens with a reading of kafka's famous story the metamorphosis where the main character gregor samsa wakes up one morning having found him found himself um transformed into a monstrous vermin mm. and you know there's been kind of many different readings of of what this might be a metaphor for but i argue that we can read it as as a metaphor of climate change of the anthropocene where we wake up one morning and find that we have become the monstrous vermin, the pests of the world that are living to the detriment of other beings. Mm. And then kind of thematically through the story, you know, there's there's all the kind of um, the interactions between Gregor as this vermin and his family and sort of the way that they treat him now that he's transformed. So I find it really useful for for thinking about the way that we we relate to non-human others so yeah hopefully that kind of clears up a little bit what yeah, i mean when i, can, I say i, I that. use literature yeah yeah so it's it's kind of a way into thinking about um things in kind of a different way you know than the kind of rational scientific worldview mm -hmm. you know it, it's obviously bringing in the imagination to open up other aspects that science uh you know would be like mm, no we need evidence yeah and also just you know we are storytelling creatures like this is part of what it is to be human and so we know the data on climate change we've known mm. it for years mm. but actually when you look at the kind of the psychology of the way people construct the the narratives that guide their life mm -hmm. you know seeing data that contradicts that just just kind of uh makes them shut down mm. or or look for reasons to to kind of disbelieve that data whereas if you give people stories it's like much more relatable so the, there's a wonderful book called um don't even think about it why our brains are wired to ignore climate change by okay. um george marshall and and he really talks about this how essential stories are to to change people's behavior like throwing data at them just just doesn't work Thinking about agency then, um, and how we understand this concept of the Anthropocene, you write about the con a concept of the end of the world, and obviously with the climate crisis 
we're all thinking about sort of the literal end of the world and extinction and so on. But you also talk about the world ending could be the ending of the world of human narcissism and kind of destabilizing human exceptionalism. Uh, Could you expand on that a bit? Yeah, sure. So part of my thinking around animism is not just recognizing the animism of non-human and non-living forces, but it's also recognizing, I guess, what you could call the animism of the unconscious mind. I should say that Freud's work, psychoanalysis, is quite important to my thinking throughout. And so, you know, we have this construction and this illusion, actually, that is very good that we are rational thinking beings. And this is, of course, one of the key ways that we like to distinguish ourselves from other species that, that you know, we have language, that we're rational, that we're intentional. Mm-hmm. But actually, when we look at the unconscious and you know freud obviously gets a lot of um slack for kind of the ways that some of his ideas are perhaps unscientific but i like to think of freud as a philosopher who can Mm. tell us something about human relations and, and interactions and in fact the notion of the unconscious has now been corroborated by neuroscience they can tell that you're about to make a decision seven to ten seconds before you yourself, the conscious I that you have in your mind mm. before you're aware of it. So, you know, it's it's kind of empirically proven that there that there is this kind of subconscious agency that actually affects our decisions, our behavior in a much more significant way mm. than we like to admit. And so part of this recognition of of non-human agency is also kind of the recognition of this this agency that is like within the self that is something um separate from it and it kind of reveals that we're not quite so rational as we as we think we are and so then the very notion that that should distinguish us from other species mm-hmm. starts to fall apart and another way that I do think about non-human agency in the book is that I have this notion of Anthropocene reading. So the Anthropocene being the kind of new geological epoch in which we we find ourselves. And I suggest that this phrase Anthropocene reading can actually be understood in, in three different ways. So it can be the reading of the Anthropocene, the kind of work of stratigraphy that kind of looks for the markers that we're leaving on the planet. It can be the the secondly the the reading of texts in the context of the Anthropocene. So just like I was talking about reading this Kafka text in a in a new way that recognizes the context that we're now in. But then also the third way is that we can read it as the Anthropocene reading us. So the 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 kind of advent of this new environmental reality reveals things about us, about our ways of being, about our civilization that we didn't realize so we become the text in this metaphor and we are being read and you know maybe we don't like <laughs> the the meanings that are being yeah. found there yeah. um and then just to go back to this question of the the end of the world so th- this is the the subtitle of the book it's called radical animism reading for the end of the world and mm-hmm. because i'm really interested in etymology and like the ancient history of language because it kind of it reveals to us part of of what I'm calling the animism of language. So, so the word world actually comes from uh, the old Danish where eld, and that where is the same where as in werewolf, which means man wolf. So where actually means man, and then eld means age. So the word world means the age of man. And so 
when I'm talking about the end of the world or reading for the end of the world is thinking about not the extinction of the human, but rather the end of the age of man with a capital M, like this mm -hmm. precise human self-conception that has been so pathological and that has, you know, it's, it, it's the delusory position that has created the problem that we're in. Mm. Mm. Okay. Yeah. Wow. So yeah, there's so much going on there. You've, you've covered Freud um, and Freud is, or the Freudian paradigm shift is one of what you call the four blows. And the four blows are the four blows to human narcissism um, that you've been mentioning there. So the other blows are the, the Copernican and the Darwinian. There's the Freudian one, and then there's now the climate change, non-human agency one. So did you want to briefly just summarize what, what the other blows are? Yeah, sure. So the the first three are are named by Freud, in fact. So Freud says, okay, there's been three great blows to human narcissism. The first was the Copernican revolution in which humans realized that they're not the center of the universe. The second was the Darwinian revolution when humans realized that they were related to all other animals. Mm. And the third, Freud says, without so much of a hint of irony, is his own work, psychoanalysis, when we realize that we're not agents of a conscious will. Mm. And then I argue that when you when you look at these three blows, um, what we see is actually the resilience of human narcissism, narcissism because mm -hmm. not that we deny the truth of the discoveries, but because we fail to take them into account. And I argue that this failure, this this failure to act in a way that recognizes that we're not the center of the universe and that we're related to other animals and that we're not agents of a conscious will. This, this failure to act in a way that would be um, concordant with that knowledge has actually led to what I name as the fourth blow to human narcissism, which is the climate crisis. So this kind of ongoing undoing of the material conditions upon which civilization depends actually sort of makes these previous three blows reverberate because it shows us very forcefully, even if we want to continue to ignore it, it shows us that we're not the center of the universe and that we're dependent on other life forms and that irrational and unintentional forces define our history and particularly our response to the climate crisis. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that thing about failure to act is really quite something because, um, Greta Thunberg just did a speech a couple of days ago where she pretty much says that, you know, to the governments of the world. And, and she said something like along the, the lines of, you have been acting, you've been acting like you're changing things, but you're not actually bringing about any real change. Mm -hmm. And it's as if, you know, we're all watching what's going on in how our governments and corporations and so on are, you know, that human narcissism is still persisting, even now with everything we know about the climate crisis, there's still the failure to act. So it's as if, you know, is this going to be, is this fourth blow going to be a continuation? You know, is it going to be like the other blows where we just keep failing to act? Well, I, I, I distinguish it from the other blows because whereas the previous ones were sort of 
um, intellectual realizations, realizations mm -hmm. of science, and obviously the recognition of climate change is that too. But it, it also has this very material reality that the the others don't. So it, it, it is literally undermining the conditions for our civilization. So whereas it was possible to continue to act as if we were the center of the universe, mm. it is becoming impossible to do that because of the way the the, the planet is is transforming. So it's either we change civilization or the planet changes civilization for us. Yeah. 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 So I guess, you know, with this one, we're forced to act because we have to do things like, for example, to mitigate flooding, whatever your thoughts are on climate change. If you're a climate change denier, things are still going to need to happen because of climate change, whether you believe it or not. So this should be the big wake up call that humans have needed for a long time. I mean, it has to be right. Yeah, well, but I mean, then I think what we also see in kind of, you know, what you what you just said about what Greta was saying that, um, you know, this this kind of disparity between real action and just talking about it is kind of it, it, it underlines again, this third blow this this the fact that we are so driven by unconscious forces, whether on individual or societal levels. So, you know, this kind of this desire for profit and growth and 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 the way in which our brains can kind of repress the cognitive dissonance that sort of shows us that our way of being is no longer compatible with the planet. It's like it's perfectly possible for someone like me who is like deeply invested in the environment to still take a flight because there's a pandemic and you know getting a train across europe is is like really inconvenient mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and you know i can i can sort of make that okay in my brain um mm. and that's just something that we're all guilty of and that's kind of just part of of human psychology and i guess kind of my desire or my impetus with this like focus on on what I'm calling the animism of the unconscious is that we can't get rid of that. We can't become the rational beings that we like to think we are. But what we can do is become more aware of the unconscious and kind of take it into account in the way mm. that we we live and act. And it's yeah. it's just kind of it's about being a bit more humble and kind mm. of realizing that we are quite fallible and so how can we build structures and how can we build civilizations that take this inherent fallibility into account and kind of make it easier to to act in a way that is not so damaging to the planet and to ourselves yeah Thinking about Darwin then, yeah, it's interesting um, because my understanding of Darwin, I guess how I was educated into it or socialized into understanding what Darwin was about, was that Darwin showed that evolution meant that humans had evolved from apes and were therefore the most like special species. But actually, 
what Darwin really said, if if I've understood this right, is that animality exists on a spectrum. So, you know, we're not necessarily better than apes. We're just, you know, we've got other things going on. We're, we're in a different part of this spectrum. And so thinking about that, that kind of fake human-animal divide, one of the things that we think makes us special, as you've mentioned, is the ability uh, to speak humans having language and also storytelling. And obviously storytelling has a lot to do with metaphor, right? So did you want to expand on that thing about the language of humans and animals and, and, and metaphor more generally? So, I mean, just to go back to the beginning of your question of, of, of this notion of kind of um, we had evolved from apes and therefore were more highly evolved. I mm. mean, that is that is not in Darwin. That is and, you know, I'm not sort of blaming you mm -hmm. for thinking that that is the reading of Darwin that, you know, kind of rescues human exceptionalism yeah um yeah. but 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 evolution is radically non-teleological so mm -hmm. there is no no kind of progress and, and 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 what it tells us is that differences are always of degree rather than kind so you go back to you know when when mammals evolved from little scurrying things uh from the time of the dinosaurs if you think about the the difference between you and your parents, mm -hmm. there is no one generational difference that would have been more different than the difference between you and your parents, which, you know, is completely mind blowing. But yeah. that is the reality of it. There is an unbroken chain of descendants from the scurrying things to where we are. Um, right. and, and that also tells us that we're not at an end point that mm -hmm. you know we haven't reached this thing called the human and and that's it like mm -hmm. if we survive the mess that we've made mm -hmm. you know beings in another in another couple of million years are going to look very different from wow. us so mm -hmm. yeah but so to think about to think about um language and metaphor um so another way in which i show that kind of language can be thought of as a living thing or as a you know metaphorically or otherwise is the fact that language and uh, organic beings both come about by processes of evolution and the notion of the evolution of language the notion that language kind of builds up by these little incremental steps is actually older than darwin's theory of biological evolution mm. so he recognized that what he was trying to describe was quote curiously the same like he he noticed that there was a similarity in the way that that language and and organic organisms evolve mm -hmm. and you know we didn't have a study of dna and genomics um when darwin was writing so he he couldn't have known that but then actually what that tells us when we realize that you know dna the instructions by which organisms are created mm -hmm. is is a code it's this code of four letters that that kind of writes a list of instructions for for cells to follow so there's a kind of more than metaphorical resonance between between language and the kind of uh miraculous fact of being a lump of matter that can walk around and think about stuff mm -hmm. which 
yeah, I, sorry, whenever I think about evolution, I'm just like, it's so mad that we are literally bits of rock that have got up and started walking around over a really long time. Um, <laughs> yes, it is, yeah. So yeah, and then the the notion of um, metaphor, people think that metaphor is, you know, something that mainly happens in like literary texts in poems. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. This is not quite the case. So I, I tried to show how language is radically metaphorical. Um, mm-hmm. So so kind of all language has this metaphorical resonance. So the word environment is an example of this. So it, it literally means to environ or to go around. And so mm-hmm. the very notion of the environment rests on a metaphor in which we human beings are at the center and we are surrounded by the environment that environs us. Mm-hmm. But this is not the case. And I think this is kind of this accounts for like the move to terms like entanglement and non-human nature because because we're we're sort of realizing that this metaphor had a very particular social um ontological assumption at mm. the heart of it and that that no longer adequately adequately describes the reality that we're in mm-hmm. so my notion is that like it's not that we can um get outside of metaphor like we can't we can't escape it so again it's about recognizing it it's about taking it into account it's about noticing the metaphors that we live by Mm. Mm. yeah okay that's great thank you so yeah again it's it's about awareness of these these things that we've taken for granted for so long that we thought we knew um Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, 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 you know, to, to relate it a little bit to animals. So like we can think about the kind of euphemisms that we use for meat. Mm-hmm. So pork and beef, like these are a, a kind of metaphor, like, because mm-hmm. we, you know, and we use it to distance ourselves from rather than, than calling them pigs mm-hmm. or cows, mm-hmm. we take this word, which sort of becomes this like singular uh noun pork beef so it's it's like this kind of disembodied it's already a disembodied product yeah so in that recent episode that you that you had with rebecca gregson Mm. and she's and she was kind of talking about um the ways in which we psychologically distance ourselves well that this happens in language too Mm. Mm -hmm. yeah yeah so again it comes back to the stories that we tell ourselves um, and how important storytelling is. And this brings me on to something I wanted to ask you about, um, you know, thinking about evolution of language. I mean, do you think it's it's possible because a lot of a lot of animal rights activism focuses on language, and we're trying to we're trying to like forcefully evolve it or change it by, you know, saying, you know, okay, call pork what it is, call it pig flesh. Um, and things like that and and also you know we don't want to call animals it we want to call them they or them give them pronouns because they're a, they're a, you know a person uh, they have personhood or personality they're not just like objects do you think that that is that is something that could work that we can actively change language and that would then change the way people like relate to animals or is it more like 
the relationships come first, then the language changes, or it's a mix of both. I don't know. Yeah, I think it's both. Mm-hmm. I think it's both. And I think even, you know, even if we can't necessarily, um, you know, make, because language doesn't work like this, you can't make people start calling um, pork yeah. pigs or start giving pronouns. But but even if, you know, some people choose to use these new terms, it can be like a little, like wake up or like a mini flashlight that sort of reveals that the way you know the the thing that we habitually call something is mm-hmm. not this kind of given objective fact it has a cultural resonance and and history and just so by changing up little bits of language that can be a way of kind of yeah exposing the cultural build up around the previous term So thinking about stories then um, and what we can learn from them and how they can destabilize um, kind of our understandings or or kind of move us forward in new directions, you cover a couple of texts in the book, which is Alice in Wonderland and Through the Looking Glass and what those stories can tell us about human-animal relationships because there's all sorts of kind of contradictions and um, interesting ways that humans and animals are p- portrayed in those texts. Uh, did you want to expand on that a bit? Yeah, sure. So, you know, obviously the the Alice books are full of, I guess, human-animal hybrids. Like you have like various animals that can talk, which is something mm. that we usually think of as wearing uh, as um, reserved to humans. Um, but then there are also animals that are wearing clothes and having tea parties and doing all sorts of human activities. So mm. generally, I, I feel like it's a really rich text for kind of interrogating this boundary that we we like to set up between humans and other animals. But uh, what's kind of central to to my reading of it are the, the scenes that dramatise the consumption of of non-human animals so mm-hmm. there's kind of various moments in which um alice is made to realize that her meat-eating habits are well she's made to feel really awkward i guess because she mm-hmm. sort of like accidentally like starts talking about eating animals a few times and then realizes that she's talking to an animal and so okay. there's these like all these telling moments where she kind of stops herself and mm-hmm. and you know um and then there's there's one like really remarkable and and fascinating scene where she's um she's gone into the kitchen and there's the duchess and her cook and then the duchess's baby boy and so there's this little baby and the the cook is like this really crazy violent character who is like Mm -hmm. throwing pans at the baby and then finally they throw the baby at alice and alice is like i have to take this this child with me it would be murder to leave it behind Mm -hmm. and then there's this passage in which the baby kind of turns into a pig in her arms Mm. and then by the end of the passage and she real and she's like, okay, there's no mistake about it. This thing is a pig now. And then she's like, it it would be absurd for me to carry it further. And so you know, you've got something which is 
transforming from one helpless animal to another mm. one be like both beings don't have the power of speech and yet it goes from this kind of i must carry i must look after this thing to it would be absurd for me to continue carrying this thing and so it just kind of it casts a light on the way that we make this distinction but how this distinction is actually quite arbitrary well that's amazing so that that must have been quite a challenge to because it wasn't it written kind of in the Victorian era? So that would have been quite a challenge to the kind of scientific, um, you know, rationality that was kind of, you know, the norm then. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it, it comes again to this, what, what I'm calling the animism of literature. So, you know, he, I, I'm not sure that it was necessarily read like that at the time. And even mm. when I read it as a child, I mm. certainly didn't read it like that. You know, it just kind of, it, it's like this nonsense text. Yeah. But, but part of its magic is that kind of once I have my like vegan glasses on, mm. I, you know, I notice these things that, you know, it's not that they weren't there before, yeah. but that they, they, you know, they find their context in which to emerge. Yeah. Yeah. That's really cool. I suppose it does make you wonder as well, you know, did the author even just for a, a, a short moment also have that thought when they wrote it, you know, was it just part of the mix maybe of even that unconscious and subconscious going on? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, but, but, but also, I mean, I don't actually know whether Lewis Carroll was vegetarian or not. Mm. I feel this is probably something that I should know, but <laughs> I feel like the, you know, it's not just that example. There mm. are, and I, you know, I talk about this in the text, there are, there's this whole accumulation of examples. And so it becomes harder to believe that he, he didn't realize that, but mm. yeah. Yeah, that's cool. That's really nice to think about. So in terms of activism or anti-speciesist advocacy, um, are there any other links that you can think of um, between kind of animism and animal liberation or veganism um, I'm thinking of the kind of the non-human agency aspects of animism that we've, we've covered in quite some detail um, that kind of the activists might be able to use or work with, because I feel like we're still in the animal liberation movement. We're still stuck in this very kind of Western worldview of justice, which is about expanding the moral circle to bring animals into like personhood within, you know, the kind of legal framework. So I wonder what a kind of an animist approach would be, you know, that, that still recognizes agency, but doesn't have these um, human centric kind of legal constructs maybe. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah, I guess I, as I've sort of explained in various ways, my my thinking is kind of twofold it's like not only recognizing the agency of non-human and non-living beings but it's also recognizing the irrational agency within the human itself mm. and i think what that um recognition helps us to recognize 
is that all of the terms that that you just brought up so the notion of personhood the notion mm. of a moral circle of of rights all of these are based on a conception of the human person that is mm. fundamentally flawed so it's mm. it, it's based on a conception of human beings as rational intentional beings and so rather than thinking about bringing animals into personhood, maybe we can also think about how the very concept of personhood is based on untenable, untenable assumptions about human beings, that we're not as human as we think we are. And so in recognizing this, in recognizing our own fall fallibilities and our own animal nature, perhaps that's another way that we can, we can better feel a, a kinship with non-human others mm -hmm. um mm -hmm. or at least lose some of the narcissism and and self-regard that maintains this hierarchy yeah. and maybe i can just close with an with an example mm -hmm. that um i absolutely love from from michael pollan's work so in his book the botany of desire he talks about how you know when we look at um co-evolutionary or symbiotic relationships in in nature we don't say okay one species is in charge and the other one is being controlled we see how like the the two co-evolutionary species so the example that he uses is like a bee and an apple tree mm -hmm. so you know the bees getting nectar and the the apple tree is getting pollinated and that's how evolution works mm -hmm. and then but we have because we have language and because we have this self-consciousness when we think about relationships between humans and other animals we put ourselves in the in the driving seat we we kind of assume that we're in control and this is really um illusory like yes mm. we have consciousness but that doesn't equate to attention intentionality it doesn't equate to rationality and so there's ways in which we interact with other species that are just like this relationship between the bee and the apple tree um, and you know we are being affected just as much as we are affecting and you know consciousness doesn't need to need to come into it so mm. yeah I, I i wonder whether kind of recognizing the the holes within the conception that we have of the human might be another way into this question of non-human animal liberation or anti-speciesism Thank you.